Well, tonight we're looking at Knowing God, chapter 13, and uh, it's a great topic, isn't it? The grace of God, the grace of God. It, this was a great chapter. Uh, everything that we've read, I, I've really enjoyed, but this was a really great chapter, and I, it's helpful to think again uh, and be reminded that all that we have, everything that we stand on is the unmerited grace of God. And so he leads us through thinking about this aspect of God's character. And he says, toward the beginning of the chapter, he reminds us that grace is not a, uh, an impersonal force. So far from being an impersonal force, grace is a personal activity. Grace is a personal activity. God operating in love toward people. So it is, whenever we think about God's grace, don't think of it in a detached, impersonal sort of way, but it is God thinking of us. It is God loving us. It is God desiring to relate to us as creator to his creatures. And one of the things he talks about at the beginning of the chapter is that in general, even across evangelical churches, there is kind of a lack of understanding of what God's grace really is. And this, this leads to uh, a shallow understanding of God. And since our whole purpose in studying this book is to know God, to know him more closely, to know him more deeply, we really can't get as far as we want to in knowing God if we don't understand his grace that he has shown to us. And he says there's just kind of a, a general misunderstanding or even even beyond a misunderstanding, sometimes just a, we, we hear it in our ears, we understand the term, but it doesn't really hit home in our hearts and affect us the way that it ought to. And so he addresses that in the first part of the chapter. And he says, the root of the trouble with Christians not really grasping the grace of God he says the root of the trouble seems to be misbelief about the basic relationship between a person and God. Misbelief rooted not just in the mind, but in the heart at the deeper level of things that we never question because we always take them for granted. In other words, what we might refer to as core thoughts or core principles that we view our life by, that we view God by, that we view the world by. And if we're not careful, we can begin to develop in our own thinking core thoughts that are more in line with the world's core thoughts than they are with the Bible's core thoughts. And he walks us through some of those. And, and there, are, there are a few things that contribute toward a, a lack of grasping what God's grace really is. And he says the first of those is a misunderstanding or a lack of believing in the moral ill desert of man. What does he mean by that? Basically, the fact that we are deeply sinful creatures and that as deeply sinful creatures pervasively depraved and corrupt, that we don't deserve anything from God. 
And so he talks about how in our modern world, we just have a very, very small view of, of our own sin. And, and as a result, an inflated view of ourselves. And so in our modern world, especially in American culture, there is kind of a, a can-do attitude. You know, we see it popularized in self-help books all the time and modern psychology of if you put your mind to it, you can do it. Don't let people hold you down. Think positive thoughts and, you know, in, in, in encouraging motivational speakers like Tony Robbins or, or these people. And they are just, you can do it. You've got it within you. If just reach deep down inside and you can hear all this in, in so many different areas. You can see it in movies and songs in just the general way that people talk is you've got it within you. And so we have an overinflated sense of ourselves and a really kind of laissez-faire view of our own sinfulness that we think, well, a little lie, not a big deal. You know, uh, a little uh, sexual immorality affair here, no big deal. You know, um, cheating on my taxes, no big deal. You know, as long as I'm not like a murderer or something like that, you know, then everything's okay. We kind of have this really small view of our own sinfulness. But he reminds us that the Bible, that God's perspective on us isn't like that at all. The Bible presents a very real perspective on us, and that is that we are deeply broken. We, are, we have offended an infinite God, and so we have an overinflated view of ourselves and a small view of God. And that leads to a misunderstanding of what we think we deserve based on our own character, our own goodness. So he says the thought of themselves, that is people's thoughts as creatures fallen from God's image, rebels against God's rule, guilty and unclean in God's sight, fit only for God's condemnation, never enters their heads. Which is why there's this very popular perception of the love of God out there that God would never send anybody to hell. We have a very... Very, very inflated view of ourselves. The, the idea of us being unclean, depraved, rebels against God, deserving condemnation, it just doesn't enter into our thought process at all. And the second one, really closely related to that, is the retributive justice of God. The idea that, okay, we are sinful, and because we are sinful, and because God is just and righteous and holy, he must judge that sin. That also doesn't enter into a lot of people's thinking. The idea of retributive justice at all has fallen on hard times in the modern world. What is the idea of retributive justice? The idea of retributive justice is that with a wrongdoing or with the breaking of a law, there is a, a right, equal, in fairness, punishment that is deserved for that breaking of law. And that retribution needs to fit the crime, which is where we get this principle from the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, life for life. That's the idea of retributive justice in that that the punishment should fit the crime, not, not overly uh, harsh, 
but also not overly soft, that the punishment needs to fit what the crime was. You don't have to look far in our culture to see that we've completely lost sight of retributive justice. Instead, in its place now, the dominant view of justice is restorative justice. What is that? That we take a criminal and we try to restore him. We try to rehabilitate him. We try to make him better. And so the whole idea of prison now is not as punishment for a crime, but as let's try to make this guy better so he can reenter society. And so the whole idea of retributive justice is gone so that we can take, uh, so we have people that commit murder and they don't face capital punishment. In fact, sometimes they get out early for good behavior out on parole. They don't even face a full life sentence. People that commit violent crimes, violent rape, they're out in a few years. This is not retributive justice. This is a failed justice system. So for us then, because we live in that environment, most people think then a God of justice, a God who actually judges evil, that just, it can't even, they can't even comprehend it. And so he says, God is not true to himself unless he punishes sin. And unless one knows and feels the truth of this fact that wrongdoers have no natural hope of anything from God, but retributive judgment, one can never share the biblical faith and divine grace. So there's all these are connected. In order to really understand God's grace, you have to understand how bad you are, how morally evil and depraved you are. And then linked to that, You have to understand that because I am that evil and God is that holy, that it is perfectly right. It is perfectly just. In fact, it is necessary that God judge me for that evil. Until we feel the weight of that, that I deserve the wrath and judgment of God, we can never really understand God's grace. And then thirdly, he says, the spiritual impotence of man which essentially is our own inability to fix the problem. And again, here enters our overinflated view of ourselves that we think that, okay, here's a problem. We have a can-do spirit. We have solved uh, all of these uh, problems in modern society. We've come up with cures for different diseases. And we've got all these technological advancements. We put a man on the moon. Surely we can fix ourselves morally and clean ourselves up in the sight of God. But that's not how it works. Fixing our standing before God is not a matter of ingenuity or creative design or engineering or what or chemistry or biology, any of that. We are impotent. We are powerless to do anything to fix our condition with God. People don't seem to, uh, generally speaking, naturally speaking, we don't grasp that idea. To mend our own relationship with God, regaining God's favor after having once lost it is beyond the power of any one of us. And one must see and bow to this before one can share the biblical faith in God's grace. So we're broken and evil. We deserve punishment. 
and we can't fix it. We are powerless to fix it. And then to really understand grace to its fullest extent is to understand and appreciate the sovereign freedom of God. And that is that grace, in order to be grace, has to rest not in what is deserved or what is fair. It has to rest in the free will offer of God. It is because God's the one giving, right? God is the one giving. It is within the right of the giver to give. And because it's a gift of love, not a payment based on merit, God doesn't owe that gift to everyone. In fact, he owes it to no one. And it is within God's right to give gifts to whom he will. Uh, Just a very small, finite example is if I had $1,000 in my pocket, uh, 10 $100 bills, and I wanted to be generous on a particular day, I could walk down the street of Winfield and I could just, as I saw fit, I could hand $100 bills to people, right? There would be some who would complain, where's mine? but they wouldn't really have a claim, a legitimate claim on that, would they? There's not really a legitimate claim on that. It is, it's, it's my gift to give, and I can give it as I see fit. And they really, they can complain, but they really can't argue about the fairness of it. Because it's not like they did any work for me. It's not like they stood in line to receive it, took a number, any of that. It was just, I decided to give it. In a sense, obviously, in a more infinite perspective, that's what God does in grace. He, he gives to whom he wills. No one deserves it. He gives it because he wants to. And so he says grace is free in the sense of being self-originated and of proceeding from one who is free not to be gracious. That's a key to understanding grace, isn't it? is that God was free to not show grace. He was under no compulsion, no obligation. There were no demands placed on him from us. He did not owe us in any way that he had to be gracious to us. He could have been just within his character in in compliance with all of his attributes to not show grace to certain people. He can do that. Grace is free from the standpoint of God. Only when it is seen that what decides each individual's destiny is whether or not God resolves to save him from his sins and that this is a decision which God need not make in any single case can one begin to grasp the biblical view of grace. God can or cannot. It's totally within his ability and within his decision. As Paul says in Romans 9, God shows mercy to whom he will. He hardens whom he wills. Grace to be grace has to be freely given. And that is God's choice, whether or not to freely give. 
So then grace is not earned or deserved. And Paul makes that very clear in Romans 4. Grace is not earned or deserved. If grace is earned or deserved, then it's more like wages for a job. Then it's no longer grace. For grace to be grace, it can't be earned or merited. So the grace of God is love freely shown toward guilty sinners, contrary to their merit, and indeed in defiance of their demerit, it is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity. We're sinners. We deserve the condemnation of God. We're powerless, and it is completely within God's right to do with us as he wills. That's the foundation of understanding grace. And so grace and salvation then are linked together throughout the whole Bible. Grace and salvation belong together as cause and effect. It is by grace that you have been saved. We are rescued. We are delivered out of flowing out of the grace of God. And so grace is the source of our salvation. And he, he shows us in three ways. One is grace is the source of the pardon of sin. So we are guilty. How are we pardoned? That is a gift of God's grace. The gospel, he says, centers upon justification. That is upon the remission of sins and the acceptance of our persons that goes with it. So justification is God declaring an ungodly, unrighteous person, declaring that person not guilty, declaring that person righteous, justified in his sight. And that is our sins remitted, our sins pardoned, our sins forgiven, and us accepted in God's presence. Justification is the truly dramatic transition from the status of a condemned criminal awaiting a terrible sentence to that of an heir awaiting a fabulous inheritance. You couldn't see a greater contrast than that, could you? On the one hand, you're on death row, deserving eternal condemnation. On the other, not only are you pardoned and forgiven, you are adopted into the family as a rightful heir with the inheritance, with all of the spiritual blessings that go along with it. That's grace. Right? That's, that is grace, completely undeserved, taking someone who didn't deserve anything, and in fact, deserved severity, deserved punishment, and not only bringing that person to a state of neutrality, of forgiven, but beyond neutrality to positive acceptance and reception inheritance in the family of God. He says justification is by faith. It takes place the moment a person puts vital trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Justification is free to us, but it was costly to God for its price was the atoning death of God's son. So God's pardon comes to us as a gift of grace, but it was earned, paid for, merited by Christ's atonement. So Paul says in Romans 3.24, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption of Christ Jesus. 
God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So God presented Christ, put him in our place as our substitute, as our propitiation, so that we might have our sins forgiven. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins. There's the pardon through the atoning work of Christ, but flowing out of the riches of God's grace, right? In accordance with the riches of God's grace. So grace is the source of our pardon from sin. Secondly, he says, grace is also the motive of the whole plan of salvation. So our pardon, our Forgiveness, our justification flows from grace. The whole plan is of grace. The New Testament sets God's gift of pardon in the context of a plan of salvation, which began with election before the world was and will be completed only when the church is perfect in glory. So God's grace involves a whole plan from eternity past to eternity future. And our pardon by the redemption of Christ is a part of God's outworking of that plan. He says, we believers may rejoice to know that our conversion was no accident, but an act of God, which had its place in an eternal plan to bless us with the free gift of salvation from sin. God promises and purposes to carry his plan through to completion. And since it is executed by sovereign power, nothing can thwart it. Isn't that good news? And by the way, when we think of the plan of God, of salvation, don't think of it just in a generic plan. Think of it in terms of God's specific grace and love poured out on you. That his eternal plan of redemption wasn't just generic and provisional, but it was specific and loving. And he had you in mind when he planned to send Christ to the cross. And he will, what he started in eternity past and determined to do, he will bring it about and complete it by sovereign power. So grace is the motive of the whole plan of salvation. And then he says, thirdly, grace then is also the guarantee of the preservation of the saints. Because God's plan is from eternity past to eternity future, that means for every elect redeemed child of God, their future is also secure. If the plan of salvation is certain of accomplishment, then the Christian's future is also assured. I am and will be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. As grace led me to faith in the first place, so grace will keep me believing to the end. That's that's God's plan. And grace is the fuel, if you will, the the source for it all. The whole plan 
flows out of God's grace, his, his choice to freely show love to people, unmerited, unconditioned. And that love, that grace of God, pardons them through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, and guarantees because he set his love on them in eternity past and redeemed them through the blood of Christ, his grace on them guarantees their final salvation. As Jesus said in John chapter six, all those that the father has given me, they will come to me. And of those that come to me, I will in no wise cast them out. Also, he says, Jesus says, of all of those the Father has given me, I will raise them up at the last day. That's that perseverance. That's that preservation that he's talking about there. What God has begun, Paul says in Philippians, he will carry it on to completion. He will finish it all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. And so the whole thing is wrapped up in grace. So he says, we, we need to have a response to that then. What is our response? Our response to grace is not what Paul hypothetically says in Romans 6.1. Well, let us go on and continue in sin then so that grace may abound. Paul says, no, may it never be. God forbid. The proper response to grace is not license, doing whatever we want. The proper response to grace is obedience, is living out the calling that God has placed in our lives. He says in the New Testament, doctrine is grace, ethics is gratitude. For love awakens love in return. In other words, God loved us, that awakens love in response to God's love. And love, once awakened, desires to give pleasure. So God awakened within us love, and that love for God has a desire to please God, to do what is right in his sight. And so the revealed will of God is that those who have received grace should henceforth give themselves to good works. And gratitude will move anyone who has truly received grace to do as God requires. So far from grace being a, hey, God's merciful and gracious to us. We can live however we want. No, instead, Titus 2 says, no, the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live holy and righteously and blamelessly in this world, looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace, the proper response to grace is love back to the one who loved us, expressed in our devotion to him, but also in practical good works that we live out before him.